Well, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, we introduced this chapter last week, and now we'll actually get into the text. And we'll go ahead and read the entire section we're going to look at this morning. That is John 21, 1 through 14. And so follow along with me as I read this amazing story. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. One of the realities that confronts the church of Jesus Christ, especially in a culture like ours where there's a church on every street corner, is the fact that lifelong commitment and deep abiding love for your local church is largely a thing of the past. At least in our culture it is. It's heartbreaking both to a pastor and to highly involved committed members when Someone who was once all in, who was once completely involved, suddenly finds a better option down the street. And it makes those who stay feel inadequate, feel like they're not good enough, feel like they're insufficient. And of course, as a pastor, the most heartbreaking part is often the inevitable email or, uh, or letter that I or the leadership of the church receives lobbying some sort of emotional grenade into our hearts as someone leaves. It hurts. It's difficult. I once received an email from someone, a person with whom I had spent time, I had invested in them, I had prayed with them, I had loved them, I had counseled with them, I had ministered alongside this person, cherished this person in my heart, broke bread with this person, and the email simply said, this church isn't a good fit for me, goodbye. It's heartbreaking. And I've talked to hundreds of pastors and all All of them have had those types of heartbreaks. And I've talked to church members over the years who are committed and and they can't comprehend that level of nonchalance when it comes to simply throwing away your local church. It betrays a view of the church as some sort of institution or organization like Walmart or Citibank rather than the living body of Christ of which I'm a part Now, to be certain, on occasion, there are legitimate reasons to leave a church if they're consistently not leaving the body to follow the biblical gospel or falling into trends or fads which don't reflect the biblical ecclesiology. But that aside, very often when someone abandons the local body of believers, it's for self-serving and preferential reasons. I've read on this somewhat and Countless books and articles have been written trying to diagnose and treat this spiritual pandemic of consumerism. Some say we need more attractive programs, better facilities. Others push for more activities for children or a certain style of music. 
Still others suggest focus groups in the church to find out what people want, what would make them happier. None of these are necessarily inherently wrong, but it does force us to ask, what is the root cause of this phenomenon? Now, I can't stand here and tell you I know the singular root cause, but I do know one of them. I can point out one, and that is a lack of genuine love for your local church, warts and all. And so to close out our time here in the Gospel of John in the coming weeks, which we began, we began Gospel of John a couple of years ago, we're going to use John 21, the last words, the final words of the four Gospels, which are in preparation for the coming church age in the book of Acts. We're going to use John 21 to examine reasons you should love your church. And we introduced this last week to get us to the text, and now we finally get to the text And so I'm just going to give you several reasons in the coming weeks why you should love your church. Today's reason is love your church for the beloved sheep. Love your church for the beloved sheep, the members of our church. Our esteemed John MacArthur, in one of my favorite sermons he ever preached, I'll bet I've listened to this 20 times, he said, quote, Somebody said, we think sheep are cuddly little creatures because the only ones we ever deal with are stuffed and that's true if you've ever worked with sheep and i've been exposed to them just enough to know that they are weak helpless unorganized prone to wander demanding dirty and have sharp hooves and when the lord was describing us as sheep he was talking about sheep as sheep not sheep as stuffed animals and that's true and yet that is the church that's who we are You can switch churches a thousand times and you'll simply find sheep that sing different songs, sing different styles of music, struggle with different varieties of sin, do things differently than you're used to, but they're still sheep. And you can't run from that. Now, bearing in mind that John 21 really serves to help us prepare for the coming of the church in Acts chapter 2, let's look at this first scene here in John 21 and use it to remind us why we... The sheep of God are beloved, are loved by him. In fact, what I'd like to do is show you that the sheep of God, the members of the local church are beloved because all believers in Christ carry four amazing privileges. Four amazing privileges. Each and every Christian is carrying them. These are privileges. These are honors that only the Christian has. We'll spend most of our time on the first privilege And then move on to the other three. The first privilege the sheep carry, they carry God's delight. They carry God's delight. Verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. After the resurrection of Christ, the disciples now have returned to Galilee. They're by the Sea of Tiberias. That's an alternate name for the Sea of Galilee, which reflects the Roman occupation John says that Jesus revealed himself. This is specifically designating this account as a resurrection appearance, a proof of the resurrection of Christ. And so now, after all the adventures, after all the ministry, after all the preaching, after all the healings, after all the the casting out of demons that the, the disciples had experienced with Jesus, often in the midst of crowds of tens of thousands, here they find themselves just a few of them seated on the quiet shores of the Sea of Galilee, and they don't know what to do. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of, Can- of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So we have five of the disciples named, two of them unnamed. But by now, after having read not only John's gospel, but all four gospels, these men are familiar to us. Simon Peter who has this exuberance for Christ with a lot of rough edges thrown in. He's always in the lead, whether it's doing something good or something not so good. We have Thomas. We know him for his tender love for Christ, which couldn't stand the thought of being disappointed by a false hope of his resurrection. We have Nathaniel, of whom Jesus said in John chapter 1, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, And when Nathanael had heard that Jesus omnisciently had seen him and known him before they had even met physically, Nathanael immediately confessed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. We have the sons of Zebedee, James and John. 
James, the brother of John, who received the nickname from Jesus as one of the sons of thunder, but who is always listed among the three closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And then we have John, the author of this gospel, who nicknamed himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So grateful, so thankful for the love of Christ. And already in this story, with you, when you see these men together, you sense a warmth, you sense a bond. There is now three and a half years of history these men have shared together, and you get a sense that something special is about to happen as we read. But the disciples don't know. As far as they're concerned, they're just sitting on the shore. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, nighttime was the preferred time to fish in ancient times because the fish that you caught before dawn then could be sold in the market early in the morning. And verse 3 says they got into the boat, meaning they were already seated on the shore by a boat. Uh, It's probably Peter's boat. It's his idea to go fishing. He's the one that, that leads the way here. And there's a, there's a spontaneity here that's just charming. Peter said, I am going fishing. Now, just so you know, there are certain parts of the country in our nation where when the pastor reads the text, I am going fishing, half the people in the church say, Amen. And that's moving to them because that's what we do on the weekends. We fish. And of course, the other disciples, we will go with you. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled, speculating as to why Peter went fishing and the others went with him. Some say that Peter had lost his calling, lost his, his drive, his motivation for ministry. Others say that because Peter had failed Jesus, he denied him three times and was seeking to maybe cover his shame by reverting back to his former lifestyle. It's true that Jesus will, in fact, deal with Peter's denials on this very morning, beginning in verse 15. But this appears to be a fairly spontaneous decision on the part of Peter, and it doesn't prove that he's just trying to return to his previous life. It could be that he was hungry, could be that he was bored, or maybe he wanted to make a little extra money. And after all, they weren't living off of the ministry as they had been prior to this. But whatever the reason is, the the general impression you get, and this is clear from the text, is that these are men without a purpose. They are at a very odd time at the moment. They've seen Jesus a couple of times. They've seen the resurrected Lord, but not the constant day and night contact that they had with him for three and a half years. And at this point, they have not yet received the Holy Spirit. They were in many ways in limbo. Jesus was raised from the dead. They'd seen him a couple of times, and yet there's a what now to their lives at this moment. They didn't seem to have a clear answer. But in his graciousness and in his kindness, the risen Lord Jesus Christ is going to appear to them. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Just as day was breaking. This is very precise. It means before sunup, at first light. This is not dawn. This is prior to dawn. And so Jesus would be somewhat shadowed. But like his other resurrection appearances, Jesus didn't allow himself to be recognized immediately. Now, the question is, how did he get there? It just says he stood on the shore. And we might think that that just simply means that that's where he was standing. But there's more to it than that. In the context of the resurrection appearances of Christ in the Gospel of John, we see that phrase three other times. And on two of those occasions, it was an instant appearance of Christ. That one minute he's not there and the next second he is. The resurrected Jesus was living in a different sort of existence now than that of his former earthly limitations. He'd already fulfilled his father's expectations and plan to live exactly as any man But now he's resurrected, he's in his glorified body, walking alone to the Sea of Galilee would serve no purpose. So he simply arrived. He stood there. And as Jesus had done countless times before, he asked them a question that they already knew the answer to. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. 
Now, he would have had to yell this question. Uh, verse 8 says they were 100 yards from the, from the shore, so it's not a quiet question. He's saying, children, do you have any fish? And they're yelling back, no. And he calls them children. Now, this is an unusual word. This particular word has a, a very broad usage, but the way Jesus uses it here would have been very well known to them. It basically has a, a colloquial familiarity to it. What he's saying is, hey, fellas, hey, boys, there's familiarity, there's, there's relationship, there's closeness. And he says, do you have any fish? Of course, he knows the answer to this question already. But listen to this. This is the only time that this particular word for fish is used in the entire New Testament. And in fact, it's a very broad word, and it means something akin to, do you have food? Do you have a bite to eat? In other words, he's not saying just literally, do you have fish? He's saying, have you caught breakfast? Do you have food? That tells us the main reason they went fishing is probably because they were hungry. They wanted something to eat. But did you see how he cherishes them? This is the risen Savior, the one who is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And yet he comes to those hungry men and he says, Hey, fellas, do you need some breakfast? This is God we're talking about. On the shore, asking if they're hungry, if they have food. But that's not all. In a few minutes, they would get to land and look over with me at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. The last time we saw a charcoal fire was here in John's gospel. And it was in the courtyard of Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest, who was the first one to question Jesus after his arrest. But we learned then that this was not a typical fire. This wasn't a roaring blaze. A charcoal fire needed to have actual charcoal. This was a type of pre-burned and treated wood, which didn't give a big flame, but would give a long, consistent heat and was great for cooking. And so Jesus likely made it for this occasion. Now, the speculation is, did he sit there and make the charcoal fire? He would have had to, charcoal is not something you made on the spot. You would have to have brought it with you. So in all likelihood, he simply made it. But he has prepared fish. And grammatically, it can mean one fish. Maybe there's just one big one and some bread for them. Again, this is God making breakfast for a few men who are fishing. But that's not all. At first, they didn't recognize Jesus. They're ashamed of this. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They're still getting used to this whole resurrection idea. And because of it, there's a, there's a fear, there's an awe, there's an added level of respect that they exercised around Jesus. And yet, they receive no rebuke. What do they get? They get breakfast. They get food. Now, put all this together. And you tell me the relationship that Jesus had with these men. He appears specially to them He addresses them by the most familiar and friendly term you could really use, children. Hey, fellas, he serves them in a menial fashion, concerned that they have a decent meal, and he welcomes them, even when some of them are ashamed that they didn't recognize him immediately. What is he doing? Isn't it obvious? Jesus is delighting in them. He simply is loving them. And to what degree does he delight in them? How intense is this love? In Isaiah 62, God is promising that someday Jerusalem will be restored. And it describes a time of peace and joy and prosperity. And Jerusalem is given a nickname in Isaiah 62, verse 4. You shall be called, my delight is in her. For the Lord delights in you. This is a word that means that he takes pleasure in his people. And by the way, this is a perfect verb. It's continual. His delight goes on and on and on and on. It never ends. It never ceases. It never stops. And listen, if you have repented of your sin, if you have come all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ and received the forgiveness of your sins by the kindness of the Lord, if you've been born again, then you also 
are one in whom God delights, one in whom God takes pleasure. The Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, he delights in each and every one of you, each and every one who has received him by faith. And why not? Why not delight in you? His goal is that you be conformed to his perfect sinless image so that, 1 Thessalonians 4, we will always be with the Lord such that wherever he is, you will be at all times. And listen, this isn't just emotional pleasure that he delights in you. It's a delight which expresses itself in tremendous blessing. Now, obviously, the first and foremost is the blessing of salvation. Ephesians 1 reminds us that it was in love that God predestined us for salvation. Romans 5 reminds us that while we were yet sinners, God loved us and sent Christ to die for our sins. And so his delight is expressed in salvation. But beyond that, his delight extends to our care, to our concerns, to our needs. Psalm 35, 27 exclaims, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. He delights in your welfare. He delights in helping you. Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 28.63, The Lord took delight in doing you good. It delights God to give to you. God delights in, He takes pleasure in doing you great good. Now listen, I'm not just reminding you of these truths to have you recall that you carry God's delight, but I'm reminding you of these things so that you might recall that your fellow church members carry God's delight that they all carry the delight of God. Every believer in your local church is one who walks around with the delight of God upon them. And you might say, but I have other things to do. They carry the delight of God. But I can't make the church my whole life. They carry the delight of God. But I've been hurt and disappointed. They carry the delight of God. That truth never ceases. Now let me ask you this. What will you do With the temptation in your heart, the temptation to be aloof, to not be all in with your local church, what I say to you is you slay that attitude. You mortify that attitude in the name of remembering that the believers in your local church carry God's delight. How rich and how generous is our Lord to place upon us His love, His care, His concern, His tenderness, His delight. And because of that, we respond rightly. Let me give you a second privilege that your fellow Christians carry with them. They carry the exaltation of God. They carry the exaltation of God. They carry God's exaltation. So the men hadn't been able to catch any fish. As yet, none of them had recognized the man yelling his question to him from the shore. The man, Jesus, yelled at them again, verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. They didn't recognize Jesus. They didn't know who he was. So why would they try the other side of the boat? Well, they tried everything else. So they had nothing to lose. It was almost time to give up. So why not throw the net on the other side? Now, John is about to refer to himself. He never names himself in his gospel again as that disciple whom Jesus loved. And John makes a startling discovery. He's looking at the net that was empty. A guy on the shore who's yelling, throw the net on the other side of the net of the boat. They put the net in the other side of the boat. And now the net's so full that that they can't even haul it in. Aha! John figures it out. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. This is an important confession. It is the Lord. Already three times in John's gospel, this has been used as a confession for the risen Christ. John 20, verse 18, Mary Magdalene, I have seen the Lord. John 20, 24, the disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And when Thomas saw Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. This is a confession of deity, a confession of the resurrection. And so Peter put on his outer garment. It was common to strip down just the undergarments to work. 
But apparently, Peter didn't want to stand before Jesus in nothing but his fruit of the looms. And so he puts his clothes back on and jumps in. Now, this is, if you know your Bibles, this is the second time we've seen Peter go over the side of the boat to get to Jesus. Matthew 14, 29 records that when Jesus was walking on water, Peter got out of the boat and walked on water and came to Jesus. Of course, his faith failed him in that moment. But here, yet again, at the sight of his Lord, at the knowledge that Christ is there, Peter jumps into the water, apparently didn't try to walk on the water this time, thought he would go back to his old method of just swimming. But why did he do this? Why did Peter do this? The very next scene after breakfast tells us three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. Peter's so confident of his love for Christ that he dares to tell Jesus what is in his mind. You know that I love you. Let me ask you a question. What would you do? If you learned that Jesus Christ was a couple of miles from your house, what would you do? You would run if you could. You would use any means possible to get to him as fast as you could. Why? Because you've been saved from your sins by Christ. You've known him only in the pages of Scripture your entire saved life. You have this heavenly future hope because of Christ. All your longing, all your hope, all your desires are found in Christ. And if you found out that he was right down the street, you would run to him. And if you were in a boat, you would jump overboard and swim to him. Psalm 42 says so richly and poignantly, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Listen, in the heart of the believer in Christ, there is placed a longing, a yearning, a desire. It's been placed there by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you are the appointed worshipers of God. You have been appointed to give God praise. You have been appointed to give God glory. You have been appointed to give God worship. You are the ones who carry the privilege of exalting God. You will sing of the salvation given by God in Christ in the very throne room of heaven itself. Revelation 5 pictures all the saints in heaven someday singing a new song to Jesus Christ. You, O Christian, you carry the exaltation of God. It is your privilege. It's part of your new nature. Your soul cries out to give God praise. Your heart yearns to see God and your mind craves the knowledge of God in his glory. And you naturally, by virtue of your new birth, by virtue of the Holy Spirit within you, you join the psalmist of Psalm 1846 when he cries out, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. That is you, and it's natural. O Christian who's tempted to be aloof from your local church, Christian who is not perhaps all in with your local church. Christian who has let the busyness of life crowd your love for the church. Christian who sees yourself as more a part of the universal church than merely part of the local church. Every believer in your local church is an appointed worshiper of God. This is an eternal appointment. This is honored appointment. This is a heavenly appointment. Appointment. The Christian is the torchbearer of the glory and the exaltation of God. The Christian carries the banner of the, the fame of the God of the universe. We are the flag wavers. That's us. And someone asks, but our church has some difficult people in it. I know, and one of them just asked that question. What's going to change in your heart? as a result of seeing that your fellow believers carry the very exaltation of God with them. How will you view your brothers and sisters through the lens of the fact that God has appointed them to bring him glory and to sing and shout his praises for all eternity? You must, you must view one another with awe and with amazement that God has saved each of you 
and is created from those who formerly hated God, now to be in those who yearn to exalt His name. Listen, these are marvelous truths. In fact, these truths are so amazing that 1 Peter 1.12 says that these are things in which angels long to look. Yes, angels can praise God. Yes, angels can tell of God's glory. Yes, angels can recount the deeds of God. But no angel can exalt God for salvation in his life because no fallen angel has ever been saved. But fallen humanity has. Listen, if you're struggling with being all in, with total love and affection, commitment, delight in your local church, remember that every member, every believer in your local church carries the exaltation of God with them at all times. There's a third privilege your fellow Christians carry with them. They carry God's mission. They carry God's mission. Now remember what happened when they cast the net onto the other side of the boat at Jesus' instructions. Verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. They couldn't get the net out of the water. And so verse 8 says that they had to drag this net filled to overflowing with flopping fish to the shore. It would have been a ridiculous scene. Uh, All these strong men, seven of them, well now six, Peter jumped out, but they couldn't get the net in. Peter's already jumped overboard. He's with Jesus. Verse 10 Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Remember, he's cooking a fish, but maybe there's just one. So Simon Peter went aboard, verse 11, and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. This doesn't mean that Peter personally hauled the net ashore, but as usual, he led the way. Now, the Sea of Galilee has three types of fish that are the most sought after. They have sardines and barbels. They have barbs in the corners of their mouths, so they're called barbels. And then mushed. Mushed is now called St. Peter's fish. That's the nickname. And these can be about 18 inches long and weigh over three pounds. And so if this was a haul of large fish, say three to four pounds, we're talking about five to six hundred pounds of fish. This is a small fortune. This is many, many days worth of money. And John's usual precision comes out and he tells us there were exactly 153 fish. What is the significance of this? I actually listened to a whole sermon on the number 153 a number of years ago. And here was this man's point that 153 is 17 times 3 times 3. And that 17 is made up of 10 plus 7 and 12 plus 5, all of which are important numbers In the Gospel of John, I I tell you, a tear came to my eye. I felt like I wanted to get saved all over again hearing those numbers. Others say it represents the usual, the the universal rather outreach of the church because ancient wisdom said there were 153 types of fish. And so this means we're going to reach the whole world. But probably this is a very shocking interpretation. I, I don't want you to get caught off guard here. Why is there 153 fish? Because that's how many they caught. And that's it. They would have eaten a few and sold the rest. They would divide them up. So they had to count them first to divide them up. But that does bring up a question. And this one's a little more serious. Does this incident have any meaning beyond just Jesus kindly helping them catch a lot of fish? Well, your astute biblical minds are already working. I can hear the wheels turning. You're making some connections. There's an obvious connection to this event and a similar event. In fact, I want to have you turn with me to Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, once again, we'll see Jesus and some of the disciples. And once again, they are fishing. And so we see this familiar scene, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And let's just go ahead and read it to get the lay of the land here. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And that Simon is Peter, remember that. 
And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Does that sound familiar? But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Peter's astonished and he learns that he is with someone infinitely greater than himself. And look at his response. Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. But what did Jesus say to Peter? Verse 10, And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Matthew and Mark translate the phrase more famously, I will make you fishers of men. Now, because of this very clear connection, we can say with confidence that Jesus is in fact speaking a larger message to them in John chapter 21 concerning their mission on this earth. He will in fact make them fishers of men. You can turn back to John 21 now. He will in fact make them who will spread the name of Christ to all of the world. Now, I want to point out three important features of both Luke 5 and John 21, how these, are, how these are important. Three features here, very briefly. The first feature we'll call affirmation. Affirmation. During this time in John 21, between the resurrection and Pentecost, this time when they're kind of in limbo, it seems that Jesus is demonstrating once again that he can fill the nets anytime he wants, that they will, in fact, be fishers of men. There's another feature we'll call dependence. Dependence. Many of these men were formerly professional fishermen. Some of them had worked with Zebedee, uh, James and John's father, in a successful fishing business. They had multiple employees. They had a small fleet of fishing boats. And yet, in all of the Gospels, the disciples never once caught a fish without Jesus' help. They couldn't do it. They had to have him. They were dependent. And the third feature we'll call success. Success. Did you notice a detail that's placed in both accounts? Luke chapter 5, verse 6. And their nets were breaking. John 21, verse 6. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. John's making this observation, obviously, so we'll think on the contrast. What's his point? It was the power of the resurrected Savior that made the net not break. And this is true. They will be successful as fishers of men. They will be successful. We know they're successful because we're here. 2,000 years later, the gospel has continued to spread. What's different in John 21 than in Luke 5? So many things. There's a, but at the top of that list, there's a vital difference in the relationship here between Jesus and these men since the last miraculous haul of fish jesus has now died and been resurrected now the redeeming power of the cross has been applied the justifying and life-giving power of the resurrection has been applied and shortly very shortly the holy spirit will come upon them after the ascension of christ into heaven and the floodgates of heaven will open upon these men as they are the fishers of men and by the thousands New disciples will be hauled into the net such that they can't keep up. In one day, in Acts chapter 2, all without cell phones, email, or social media, the apostles would be ministering to a church of 3,000. And the book of Acts records over and over again that the Lord added to their number day by day. And in fact, what would unbelievers say about the work of the apostles, and by the way, all believers in the spread of the gospel. What would unbelievers say? Acts chapter 17, verse 6, shows a scene of Christians being dragged before authorities and haters shouting something about the Christians. Quote, these men have turned the world upside down. Why? 
because Jesus said they would be fishers of men and their nets aren't going to break. And he gave them a living picture of so many converts to Christ that they can't haul it in. You realize that every Christian carries God's mission? Every Christian does. That you've been entrusted with the glorious gospel of Christ. Now, I don't say this to you to remind you to, to evangelize, although that's obvious. I say this to you to exhort you to view your fellow believer, your fellow church member, your fellow sheep as one who has the noble and high and esteemed position of carrying the gospel of Christ to the world. And for that reason, you are to love one another. You are to love your church, warts and all. One of the greatest scenes in my mind in movie history, and it's great because I like it, I guess, but I know those things are subjective, but one of my favorite scenes, maybe is a better way to say it, is the very end of the 2003 rendition of The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. And if you've seen the movie, you recall the the scene. On a high plateau, a grand king is being crowned. He's being celebrated in his great victory over evil, but in the crowd are the tiny little plain hobbits, one in particular who had carried the terrible ring of power all across the land to finally destroy it and open the way for victory. And, and as the grand, newly crowned king approaches the little hobbits, they humbly bow, but the king stops, and he stops them from bowing, and he says, my friends, you bow to no one. And then the entire kingdom bows to these plain little tiny hobbits, and honors them for carrying the ring. Now, without taking that analogy too far, the Christian is the ring bearer. The Christian carries the mission of Jesus Christ himself to spread the gospel to the whole world. And generation after generation, the nets have been full. The gospel has been proclaimed. The entrance to heaven has been jammed with believers streaming into glory. The roll call of heaven is sounding out the countless faithful who have submitted to Christ and the Lamb's book of life is filled page after page after page after page with the names of those caught in the glorious net of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the next time, the next time that you're tempted to think less of a fellow believer, the next time you're tempted to look down on a fellow believer, the next time you're tempted to be haughty toward a fellow believer, remember that he or she carries God's mission with them. The privileges your fellow Christians carry with them, they carry God's delight, they carry God's exaltation, they carry God's mission. Let me give you a fourth And final privilege your fellow Christians carry with them, they carry God's truth. They carry God's truth. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This is an important verse. This is an act of a Jewish host. And although the text doesn't record it, right here would be the moment when Jesus would have the bread, have the fish, And he would lift up his eyes to heaven and he would give thanks. He would pronounce a blessing at the meal. And then John summarizes one more time where he began back in verse 1, verse 14. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, as we've walked through this touching and meaningful little scene here, have you had your memory jogged? Have you thought, this sounds familiar? Well, if you have, then you're not alone because this little event is basically a reenactment. It's an important reminder of many events we've already seen in the ministry of Jesus. The miraculous net full of fish from Luke 5. Peter jumping into the water to go to the Lord, not walking on the water, but the first one out of the boat. Jesus serving bread and fish like he did to 5,000 and to 4,000. The sudden appearance of Jesus Christ like his other resurrection appearances. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. What does that sound like? It sounds like the Last Supper, the Lord's Table, the institution of communion. This has been a review. This has been a looking back. And it's almost like a review of these past events now serve the purpose of reminding them that As Jesus is about to leave them, to send the Holy Spirit, 
He's about to build his new covenant community through these men. And not only is he reviewing past events, though, look at the theology that's interwoven in this little scene. We see the deity of Christ. Verse 1 and verse 14, Jesus revealed himself. Verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore. This instant appearance, he is God, fully God. Not only do we see the deity of Christ, we see the death and resurrection of Christ. Again, verses 1 and 14, these are post-resurrection phrasings and appearance of the living Lord, an affirmation of his death and resurrection. Not only do we have the deity of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, we see the sovereignty of God over salvation. The sovereignty of God over salvation. Jesus is the one who filled the net. They couldn't do it. On their own, they couldn't catch a fish. In all the Gospels, the disciples never once caught a fish without Jesus' power. And in all of history, not one person has ever been saved outside of Jesus' power. The deity of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, the sovereignty of God over salvation. How about this? The choice of God, those he will save. The choice of God of those he will save. Election. There are 153 fish. This is a specific count. There is a specific count of those whom God will save. John 6, 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me, meaning a specific number, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so we have the deity of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, the sovereignty of God over salvation, election, the choice of, of God, of those he will save, How about this? One more. The security of salvation. The security of our salvation. God has determined that the net will not break, that not one of his will escape the clutches of the glorious gospel, which has us in its grip. These are tremendous gospel truths. The deity of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, the sovereignty of God over salvation, the election of the saints and the security of of salvation. These are truths which Christians have carried with them for 20 centuries. These truths found in the word of God and yet carried by the church. 1 Timothy 3:15 says that the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth, literally a support and mainstay of the truth. We are the keepers of the truth. How do you carry the doctrines of grace? How do you carry the truths of God? Very simply, because you believe them. Because you believe them. And nobody can take that from you. In fact, what is the nickname given to followers of Christ in the book of Acts? Believers. You are believers. Now listen. Before you cast off a meaningful connection to your local church before you make a decision to do spiritual distancing of yourself from the life of the church, before you allow your life to slip by and look back at the very end to see you were never really all in with the church. Remember that these are believers. They carry the truths of God in their hearts. Listen, will you stand before God someday having resisted being completely part of the life of the church and dare to give excuses? Will you say, I didn't like all of them? Will you say, I didn't believe in church membership? Will you say, they didn't have the exact programs I wanted? Will you say, they didn't reach out to me the way I silently hoped they would? Will you say, their doctrine wasn't exactly like mine? Will you say, they didn't do things the way I thought they should? Or will you be able to say, not they, not them, but us and we? Yes, Lord, I loved my fellow sheep. Yes, Lord, I was in the life of my fellow sheep. Yes, Lord, I loved and cherished my fellow sheep because together we carry God's delight, exaltation, mission, and truth. Yes, Lord, I was discipled with my fellow sheep. Yes, Lord, I did the work of the ministry as a labor of love with my fellow sheep. Yes, Lord, I was faithful. I was steadfast. I loved your bride because I love you. I hope that's what you'll be able to say. This time of being separated from one another physically, I believe, has been a tremendous opportunity for self-reflection and searching of our own hearts. 
How much more appreciative will you be of your local church, not the institution, but the people? Or, or, did this time of physical separation reveal to you that you didn't really miss the sheep that much? If that's the case, then I would urge you to get rid of hesitation, get rid of constant evaluation, get rid of your consternation, and prepare yourself and your family to build your life around the church. Build your life around the relationships and the work of the ministry found in the local church. There's nothing else. Everything else serves that purpose. But for those of you who have longed for and have yearned for the fellowship of the body, what a wonderful opportunity we've had to reignite the flames of our love for one another. As they say, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I know that has happened. And yes, we know that as sheep we are weak, helpless, unorganized, prone to wander, demanding, dirty, and have sharp hooves. But if you could look ahead to the future of every sheep that has ever irritated you. Here's the future. Here's what they will be like. The saints of God in heaven represented by 24 elders. Revelation 4 verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Don't you want in on that? Don't you want in on that? Love your church. Why? For the beloved sheep. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now acknowledging that every church has difficult people and it's all of us. It's all of us. We all have difficulties. We all are tempted, Lord, to distance ourselves from meaningful relationships in the name of some hypothetical self-righteous reason but you have not called us to that you've called us to jump in you've called us to be like peter and dive over the side of the boat and be all in and now father in particular as we are hopefully if you would be so kind to allow this we're hopefully about to be able to regather we're, we're prayerful even this coming sunday uh, saturday and sunday rather I pray, Lord, that you would reignite in our hearts a love and affection for one another. It wouldn't just be a, a, a momentary emotional spark or flame, but would be an ignition that would never go away. That our love for your people, our love for our local church, would be elevated to a level that would never go back. And that we would honor you by being those who love one another. Lord, let us as a local body continue to love each other in practical ways as we possible, every way we possibly can. And I do pray that you would bring us back together this coming weekend. But if you don't, I pray that you would help us to be patient, to wait on you, and to grow in our love for one another, to grow in our anticipation of being in each other's presence, to grow in our desire to love the church. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.